Chapter Fifteen of the Riddle of the Sands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gesine. The Riddle of the Sands by Erskine Childers. Chapter Fifteen. Benzazil. The decisive incidents of our cruise were now fast approaching. Looking back on the steps that led to them, and anxious that the reader should be wholly with us in our point of view, I think I cannot do better than give extracts from my diary of the next three days. 16th of October. Up at 6.30, yacht high and dry. Of the three galliots out at anchor in the channel yesterday, only one is left. I took my turn with the breakers this morning, and walked to Wangerog, whose village I found half lost in sand-drifts, which are planted with tufts of marram-grass in mathematical rows, to give stability and prevent a catastrophe like that at Pompeii. A friendly grocer told me all there is to know, which is little. The islands are what we thought them, barren for the most part, with a small fishing population and a scanty accession of summer visitors for bathing. The season is over now, and business slack for him. There is still, however, a little trade with the mainland in galliots and lighters, a few of which come from the zeals on the mainland. "'Had these harbours?' I asked. "'Mud-holes,' he replied, with a contemptuous laugh. He is a settler in these wilds, not a native. Said he had heard of schemes for improving them, so as to develop the islands as health resorts, but thought it was only a wild speculation.' A heavy tramp back to the yacht, nearly crushed by impedimenta. While Davis made yet another trip, I stalked some birds with a gun, and obtained what resembled a specimen of the smallest variety of jack-snipe, and small at that. But I made a great noise, which I hope persuaded somebody of the purity of our motives. We weighed anchor at one o'clock, and in passing the anchored galliot, took a good look at her. Cormoran was on her stern, otherwise she was just like a hundred others. Nobody was on deck. We spent the whole afternoon till dark exploring the Harle, or gap, between Wangerog and Spiekerog, the sea breaking heavily on the banks outside. Fine as the day was, the scene from the offing was desolate to the last degree. The naked spots of the two islands are hideous in their sterility, Melancholy bits of wreckwood, their only relief, save for one or two grotesque beacons, and, most bizarre of all, a great church-tower, standing actually in the water, on the north side of Wangerog, a striking witness to the encroachment of the sea. On the mainland, which was barely visible, there was one prominent landmark, a spire, which from the chart we took to be that of Esens, a town four miles inland. The days are growing short. Sunset is soon after five, and an hour later it is too dark to see booms and boys distinctly. The tides also are awkward just now. I exclude all the technicalities that I can, but the reader should take note that the tide-table is very important henceforward. High water at morning and evening is between five and six, just at twilight. For the night we groped with the lead into the Muschelbalge, the tributary channel which laps round the inside of Spiekerog, 
and lay in two fathoms, clear of the outer swell, but rolling a little when the ebb set in strong against the wind. A galliot passed us, going west, just as we were stowing sails, too dark to see her name. Later we saw her anchor light higher up our channel. The great event of the day has been the sighting of a small German gunboat, steaming slowly west along the coast. That was about half-past four, when we were sounding along the harbour. Davis identified her at once as the Blitz, Commander von Brüning's gunboat. We wondered if he recognized the Dulcibella, but anyway she seemed to take no notice of us, and steamed slowly on. We quite expected to fall in with her when we came to the islands, but the actual sight of her has excited us a good deal. She is an ugly, cranky little vessel, painted grey, with one funnel. Davis is contemptuous about her low freeboard forward, says he would rather go to sea in the Dulcie. He has her dimensions and armament, learnt from Brussey, at his fingers' ends, one hundred and forty feet by twenty-five, one four-point-nine gun, one three-point-four, and four maxims, an old type. Just going to bed, a bitterly cold night. 17th of October. Glass falling heavily this morning, to our great disgust. Wind back in the southwest and much warmer. Starting at 5.30, we tacked on the tide over the watershed behind Spiekerog. So did the galliot we had seen last night, but we again missed identifying her, as she weighed anchor before we came up to her berth. Davis, however, swore she was the Cormoran. We lost sight of her altogether for the greater part of the day, which we spent in exploring the Otsuma E, the gap between Langerog and Spiekerog, now and then firing some perfunctory shots at seals and seabirds. Nautical details omitted. In the evening we were hurrying back to an inside anchorage, when we made a bad mistake. Did, in fact, what we had never done before, ran aground on the very top of high water, and are now sitting hard and fast on the edge of the Route Flat, south of the east spit of Langeoog. The light was bad, and a misplaced boom tricked us. Kedging off failed, and at 8 p.m. we were left on a perfect ararat of sand, and only a yard or two from that accursed boom which is perched on the very summit, as a lure to the unwary. It is going to blow hard, too, though that is no great matter, as we are sheltered by banks on the south-west and north-west sides, the likely quarters. We hoped to float at 6.15 tomorrow morning, but to make sure of being able to get her off, we have been transferring some ballast to the dinghy, by way of lightening the yacht, a horrid business, handling the pigs of lead, heavy, greasy, and black. The saloon is an inferno, the deck like a collier's, and ourselves like sweeps. The anchors are laid out, and there is nothing more to be done. 18th of October. Half a gale from the south-west when we turned out, but it helped us to float off safely at six. The dinghy was very nearly swamped with the weight of lead in it, and getting the ballast back into the yacht was the toughest job of all. We got the dinghy alongside, and Davis jumped in, nearly sinking it for good, balanced himself, fended off, and, whenever he got a chance, attached the pigs one by one onto a bite of rope, secured to the peak halyards, on which I hoisted from the deck. It was touch and go for a few minutes, and then easier. 
It was nine before we had finished replacing the pigs in the hold, a filthy but delicate operation, as they fit like a puzzle, and if one is out of place the floorboards won't shut down. Coming on deck after it, we saw to our surprise the Blitz, lying at anchor in the Schillbalje, inside Spiegerog, about a mile and a half off. She must have entered the Otsuma E at high water for shelter from the gale, a neat bit of work for a vessel of her size, as Davies says she draws nine foot ten, and there can't be more than twelve on the bar at high-water neeps. Several smacks had run in too, and there were two galliots farther up our channel, but we couldn't make out if the cormoran was one. When the banks uncovered we lay more quietly, so landed and took a long, tempestuous walk over the route, with compass and notebooks. Returning at two, we found the glass tumbling down almost visibly. I suggested running for Benzazil, one of the mainland villages southwest of us, on the evening flood, as it seemed just the right opportunity, if we were to visit one of those zeals at all. Davis was very lukewarm, but events overcame him. At three-thirty a black, ragged cloud, appearing to trail into the very sea, brought up a terrific squall. This passed, and there was a deathly pause of ten minutes, while the whole sky eddied as with smoke-wreaths. Then an icy puff struck us from the northwest, rapidly veering till it reached northeast. There it settled and grew harder every moment. Southwest to northeast. Only the worst sort do that, said Davis. The shift to the east changed the whole situation, as shifts often have before, making the route of Fiat's a lee shore, while to windward lay the deep lagoons of the Otsuma E, bounded indeed by Spiekerog, but still offering a big drift for wind and sea. We had to clear out sharp to set the mizzen. It was out of the question to beat to windward, for it was blowing a hurricane in a few minutes. We must go to leeward, and Davis was for running further in, well behind the Jans sand, and not risking Benzazil. A blunder of mine, when I went to the winch to get up anchor, settled the question. Thirty out of our forty fathoms of chain were out. Confused by the motion and a blinding sleet shower that had come in, and forgetting the tremendous strain on the cable, I cast the slack off the bits and left it loose. There was then only one turn of the chain round the drum, enough in ordinary weather to prevent it running out. But now my first heave on the winch lever started it slipping, and in an instant it was whizzing out of the horse-pipe and overboard. I tried to stop it with my foot, stumbled at a heavy plunge of the yacht, heard something snap below, and saw the last of it disappear. The yacht fell off the wind and drifted astern. I shouted and had the sense to hoist the reefed foresail at once. Davis had her in hand in no time, and was steering southwest. Going after, I found him cool and characteristic. "'Doesn't matter,' he said. "'Anchor's buoyed.' Ever since leaving the Elbe, we had had a boy-line in our anchor against the emergency of having to slip our cable and run. For the same reason, the end of the chain was not made permanently fast below. We'll come back tomorrow and get it. Can't now. Should have had to slip it anyhow. Wind and sea too strong. We'll try for Benzazil. Can't trust a warp and kedge out here. An exciting run it was, across country, so to speak, 
over an unboomed watershed. But we had bearings from our morning's walk. Shoal water all the way and a hollow sea breaking everywhere. We soon made out the Benzazil booms, but even under mizzen and foresail only we travelled too fast, and had to heave to outside them, for the channel looked too shallow still. We lowered half the centreboard and kept her just holding her own to windward, through a most trying period. In the end, had to run for it sooner than we meant, as we were sagging to leeward in spite of all, and the light was failing. Bore up at 5.15 and raced up the channel, with the booms on our left scarcely visible in the surf and rising water. Davis stood forward, signalling, port, starboard or steady, with his arms, while I wrestled with the helm, flung from side to side and flogged by wave-tops. Suddenly found a sort of dyke on our right, just covering with sea. The shore appeared through scud, and men on a quay shouting. Davis brandished his left arm furiously, I ported hard, and we were in smoother water. A few seconds more and we were whizzing through a slit between two wood jetties. Inside a small square harbour showed, but there was no room to round up properly, at no time to lower sails. Davis just threw the kedge over, and it just got a grip in time to check our momentum, and save our bowsprit from the quayside. A man threw us a rope, and we brought up alongside, rather bewildered. No more so than the natives, who seemed to think we had dropped from the sky. They were very friendly, with an undercurrent of disappointment, having expected salvage work outside, I think. All showed embarrassing helpfulness in stowing sails, etc. We were rescued by a fussy person in uniform and spectacles, who swept them aside and announced himself as the custom-house officer. Fancy such a thing in this absurd mud-hole. Marched down into the cabin, which was in a fearful mess and wringing wet, and producing ink-pen and a huge printed form, wanted to know our cargo, our crew, our last port, our destination, our food, stores, and everything. No cargo, pleasure. Captain, Davis, crew, me, last port, Unsbüttel, destination, England. What spirits had we? Whiskey produced. Wheats, what salt? Tin of cerebos, produced. And a damp deposit in the saucer. What coffee, etc. Lockers searched, guns fingered, bunks rifled. Meanwhile the German charts and the log, the damning clues to our purpose, were in full evidence, crying for notice which they did not get. We had forgotten our precautions in the hurry of our start from the route. When the huge form was as full as he could make it, he suddenly became human, talkative, and thirsty, and when we treated him, patronizing. It seemed to dawn on him that under our rough clothes and crust of brine and grime we were two mad and wealthy aristocrats, worthy protégés of a high official. He insisted on our bringing our cushions to dry at his house, and to get rid of him we consented, for we were wet, hungry, and longing to change and wash. He talked himself away at last, and we hid the log and charts, but he returned, in the postmaster's uniform this time, before we had finished supper, and hailed us and our cushions up through dark and mud to his cottage near the quay. To reach it we crossed a small bridge, spanning what seemed to be a small river with sluice-gates, 
just as we had thought. He showed his prizes to his wife, who was quite flustered by the distinguished strangers, and received the cushions with awe, and next we were carried off to the gusthouse and exhibited to the village circle, where we talked ducks and weather. Nobody takes us seriously, and never felt less like a conspirator. Our friend, who is a feather-headed chatterbox, is enormously important about his ridiculous little port, whose principal customer seems to be the Langeoog post-boat, a galliot running to and fro according to tide. A few lighters also come down the stream with bricks and produce from the interior, and are towed to the islands. The harbour has from five to seven feet in it, for two hours out of twelve. Herschenkel talked us back to the yacht, which we found resting on the mud, and here we are. Davis pretends there are harbour smells, and says he won't be able to sleep, is already worrying about how to get away from here. Ashore they were saying that it's impossible, under sail, in strong northeast winds, the channel being too narrow to tack in. For my part I find it a huge relief to be in any sort of harbour after a fortnight in the open. There are no tides or anchors to think about, and no bumping or rolling. Fresh milk tomorrow. End of chapter 15